Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Lorna Thomas tells us about how many of the traditions that we currently celebrate at Christmas have come about, and tells us the religious significance behind those gifts that my true love sends to me over the 12 days of Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Now, that's the good news. And the even better news is that I promise at no point during this presentation will I sing. There will be references to Christmas carols, etc. But I promise that I won't sing because if any of you have ever heard me sing, you will be begging me not to. So Christmas, bar humbug. Thank you, those of you who have participated in wearing something festive. Hopefully this will be the start of a Christmas season of good cheer. It's many and diverse, of course, and we've all got memories of different traditions, both personal family traditions and national traditions, and they vary from country to country. And I can't claim to have covered all of them by any stretch of the imagination. But let's have a go. First of all, when you think of Christmas, do you think of this or do you think of the nativity? One is, of course, more pagan, the nativity of Christian origin. So when did it all start? The annual Christmas festival celebrating Christ's birth dates as far back to 273 AD with the traditional date of the 25th of December. But why the 25th? Well, two pagan festivals honouring the sun were recorded uh, as being celebrated on the 25th of December. And the first people who collected trees, decorations, yule logs, mistletoe, etc., they were collected around that time. And of course, then layered on top of that comes the birth of Jesus Christ. The 25th of December was also the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which was meant to be a time of gift giving and a triumph of light over the long, dark days of, of the winter. So for some reason, they settled on the 25th. There is an, a, a theory also accepted in many Western countries, uh, the Western church, that the 25th of March is the date of the Immaculate Conception of Jesus and the 25th of December, nine months later, thus celebrated his birth. Regardless of the possible reasons for the date, the church calendar was set in the West during Constantine's reign, while the Eastern Church held on to the date of the 6th of January. So we even argue about that. However, Christmas means Christ Mass. The traditional observation, it, it goes back to at least the 4th century throughout Britain and Europe. Now, do you, when you write your Christmas cards or give greetings, do you say... Christmas or Xmas. There's quite a, a deal of argument about it, and some people get very upset if you call it Xmas. It takes the name Christ out of Christmas, is, is the feeling that if you use Xmas. However, of course, you will know that the Greek alphabet, the letter that looks like a cross, is Greek for Chi, which is the first letter of the Greek word for Christ or Christos. 
the early church used the first two letters of Christos, Kai and Rao, to create a symbol which represents Jesus. So in effect, both are accurate. So no need to get terribly upset when you read Xmas or Christmas. Of course, the whole show, the whole process is preceded, particularly in Christian belief, uh, by Advent. Advent is a period of four Sundays and weeks before Christmas, sometimes from the 1st of December to Christmas Day. And Advent in Latin means coming. This is the coming of Jesus into the world. And Christians use the four Sundays and four weeks of Advent to prepare and think about the meaning of Christmas. No one's really sure when Advent was first celebrated, but there do seem to be records that date back to AD 567, when monks were ordered to fast during December leading up to Christmas. Familiar to us all probably would be Advent calendars now and, and Advent candles. Sometimes it can be one candle, which as it burns down is marked out with one piece per day uh, until you reach the 24th. Lutheran churches in Scandinavia use 24 candles, separate candles, to count down in December. And sometimes the Advent is celebrated with a wreath or crown where either the fifth candle, which represents Christmas Day, is either in the centre or separate to one side. In Christian terms, the first candle that's lit on the first Sunday of Advent represents Isaiah and the other prophets in the Bible that predicted the coming of Christ. The second candle to be lit represents the Bible. The third represents Mary, mother of Jesus. And the fourth represents John the Baptist, who told the people of Israel to get ready for Jesus's teaching. One of those things that we celebrate and perhaps don't always know the meaning of, but not to be confused with Ronnie Barker's four candles. Advent calendars, no one knows exactly when those little paper calendars of 24, 25 days with windows actually began. But in the 19th century, German Protestant Christians counted down Christmas marking 24 chalk lines on a door and rubbing them off every day throughout December. It's believed that the first mass-produced calendar was printed in the first decade of the 1900s. The first calendars with doors were made in Germany in the 1920s. When they were first made, they depicted scenes of the Christmas story and other Christmas images, such as snowmen and robins. And I don't know about you, but I do remember those from my childhood. And the first advent calendar in the UK was said to be produced in 1956. And Cadbury's made the first chocolate calendar in 1971. On to Christmas bells, because they too are a very large part of Christmas traditions, certainly in this country. And I'm focusing very much on how we celebrate Christmas. And I know that a lot of you will have lived abroad. And I'm, I'm hoping that by the time I finish this talk, you can add to whatever I've said about the traditions here with things that go on in other countries. There's a few things I've picked up on, but um, most of them relate to how we celebrate 
in the British Isles. So traditionally bells are associated with Christmas and the service, which is the first service of the day, is actually in the evening, the six o'clock mark in Jewish terms. The service on Christmas Eve is always after sunset and the church bells ring to signal the start of the service. Traditionally, the largest bell in the church is rung four times in the hour before midnight and then at midnight all the bells are rung in celebration. In the Catholic Church Christmas and Easter are the only times that mass is allowed to be held at midnight. Of course the Victorians went and took the whole thing a stage further and introduced carols and went round carol singing and very often the carol singers would be accompanied by Christmas bells. Christmas Eve for centuries, Christmas was celebrated in many parts of the world, not just as a single day, but as a whole season, beginning on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. And of course, just going past the big day for a moment, I'll come back to Christmas Day itself in a moment. But of course, we have Boxing Day, which is fairly unique to almost English-speaking peoples and, and the British Isles and associated Commonwealth. So countries such as Canada, Australia, South Africa and New Zealand, as well as ourselves, celebrate Boxing Day, but not everyone does. The, the Americans don't, for example. And the 26th of December is also St Stephen's Day. Now, just to confuse things, there are two St. Stephen's in history. The first St. Stephen is believed to have been a very early follower of Jesus, and he's said to have been the first Christian martyr. The second St. Stephen was a missionary in Sweden in the 800s. He loved all animals and particularly horses. In Germany, there's a tradition that horses should be ridden around the inside of the church at the time of the St. Stephen's Day service. Historically, both St. Stephen's have been associated with charity and giving. Starting in the Middle Ages, it was also the day when alms boxes, collection boxes for the poor, often kept in the church, were traditionally open so that the contents could be distributed to the poor. Now, some of you will remember, and I certainly can, that uh, just before Christmas, Tradespeople and people who called regularly, like the milkman, would call for their Christmas box. Perhaps you can remember that one too. And that's related to this whole idea of St. Stephen's. That obviously, by the 1950s and 60s, the Christmas box had become something that was collected earlier. St. Stephen's Day is when the Carol Good King's Wenceslas uh, is set, where, of course, you have a rich king helping the poor. It was written in 1853 and very much reflects Victorian views about charity. Boxing Day is, of course, a public holiday, and perhaps the sense has shifted somewhat to something we could recognise more familiarly as Boxing Day sales. And, of course, over the last decade or so, the Boxing Day sales now seem to take place on the 2nd of December. But however, that's a technicality I'll leave you to chuckle over. Now, something that is of quite a surprise to me, and I actually had no idea of its true origins, was the 12 days of Christmas. And as I promised you, I won't sing it. 
but it's very often chanted and, and I've done exactly the same myself. A bit like old MacDonald's farm and old MacDonald on his farm had a and so on. And you go through the 12 days and nobody particularly remembers the order. But to put it in its context, it's actually from the Catholic faith. And when in the 16th century, Catholicism had been outlawed, you could be hung, drawn and quartered, of course, for being a Catholic. Uh, not surprisingly, the church went underground. And we have stories, of course, of priest holes in large houses. People would hide the priests, etc. And to hide the important elements of their teaching, the clerics composed poems that may seem a little obscure or silly to certainly to us in the 21st century, but the verses were veiled references to the teachings of the church. So the 12 days of Christmas were actually one of these teaching tools. Now, the true meaning from the Catholic Church, true love mentioned in the song is not a sweetheart, but the Catholic Church, church's code for God. So on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. The partridge in a pear tree represents Jesus, the son of God, whose birthday we celebrate on Christmas Day. Day two, two turtle doves. These twin birds represent the Old and the New Testaments. Third day of Christmas, three French hens. These birds represent faith, hope and love. Fourth day of Christmas, four calling birds represents the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me five gold rings. The gift of, of rings represents the first five books of the Old Testament. On the sixth day of Christmas, six geese are laying. Biblically, each egg is a day in creation, a time when the world was hatched or formed by God. On the seventh day of Christmas, seven swans are swimming. Again, in the Bible, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit are prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading and compassion. On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me eight maids are milking. As Christ came to save even the lowest of the low, the gift represents the ones who could receive his word and accept his grace. Being a milkmaid was quite a lonely job. And again, it was code conveyed that Jesus cared as much about the servants as he did for those of royal blood and those who had plenty. The eight who were blessed includes, and this time it's from the New Testament, and you'll recognize the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. On to the ninth day, nine ladies dancing. These nine dancers were really the gifts known as the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Tenth day of Christmas, ten lords are leaping. The lords were judges and therefore in charge of the law. And this is therefore the code for the Ten Commandments. The eleventh day of Christmas, the eleven pipers piping. They're, of course, the disciples. 
nominally thought of as 12, but when Judas betrayed Jesus and, and subsequently committed suicide, there were only 11 left to spread the message of the gospel. On the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 12 drummers drumming. Drummers are the 12 points of the doctrine in the Apostles' Creed that goes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and ends with, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So very Christian, something that I thought was quite pagan, is actually a very Christian tradition. On to Twelfth Night, well, we have the Lord of Misrule uh, on Twelfth Night, because it was as I said earlier, going back in history, Christmas wasn't just one day, it was about 12 days. And it's traditionally celebrated right the way back through to medieval and Tudor times when the 12th night marked the end of winter, which had begun on the 31st of October with All Hallows' Eve and Halloween. At the start of 12th night, the 12th night cake was eaten. This was a rich cake made with eggs, butter, fruit, nuts and spices, which, of course, we would recognise much more as Christmas cake eaten during Christmas and after Christmas. And, of course, inside, in medieval times, a pea or a bean would be cooked in the cake and there would be two. One, if served up, that person would be the Lord of misrule and the other for the lady of misrule they would be the king and queen for the festive activities on twelfth night it's later became a, a token and i don't know about you but i can remember having sixpences threepenny pieces and sometimes farthings in Christmas puddings. So I think that was something that was connected to the Lord of Misrule. It's a very British tradition. In Scotland, he's often called the Abbot of Unreason and played a similar role. Now, we're all busy getting ready for Christmas, and I referred right at the very beginning to bar humbug, and we're all very familiar with the Victorian attitudes, and it was really the Victorians that shaped our present attitudes towards Christmas uh, and what happens. And of course, epitomised by the publication of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens on the 17th of December in 1843. And we are all familiar with the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and the three ghosts who exhort him not to be such a mean and miserly old so-and-so. And he sees the light, so to speak, and of course, becomes much more generous uh, and, and gives food and so on to um, poor little Tom. And as Dickens said, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was, was a child himself. Of course, a reference to Jesus, summarised by, of course, our very familiar Alistair Sim, who was a really fantastic Ebenezer Scrooge, bar humbug. So who was the man himself of Father Christmas, Santa Claus. There's so many stories, again, and so many traditions and so many legends as to how he came about. So a few of them. Many people will recognise him as St Nicholas, the fourth century archbishop, who was archbishop of a country that's now really basically known as Turkey. 
and he was the patron saint of girls and boys. There were many versions of his stories and miracles, raising children from the dead, saving girls and, and giving presents. One version of the story goes like this. There was a poor man who had three daughters. The man was so poor that he did not have enough money for a dowry for his daughters, and so therefore they couldn't get married. One night, Nicholas secretly dropped a bag of gold down the chimney and into the house of this poor man. This meant that at least his oldest daughter was able to get married. The bag fell into a stocking that had been hung by the fire to dry. This was repeated later with a, for the second daughter and finally for the third daughter. Determined to discover the person who had given him the money, the father secretly hid by the fire every evening until he caught Nicholas dropping the last bag of gold. Nicholas begged him not to tell anyone because he didn't want to bring attention to himself. But soon the news got out and when anyone received a secret gift, it was thought to maybe St Nicholas. Because of his kindness, he was made a saint. Now, how true that story is, I don't know. I'm just merely repeating the story. It does seem a bit contrived to a bag of gold falling into a stocking, but it sums up why we hang up our Christmas stockings in the anticipation of something good the next morning. And of course, the bag of gold turned into either those bags of chocolate money that we often had as children and we still give today, or of course, a satsuma or tangerine, which again, almost gold dust at certain times because they were so rare, you couldn't buy them or get them at any other time other than at Christmas. Now, Father Christmas, otherwise known as Santa Claus, he is mentioned in several countries in Europe. The Netherlands, for example, celebrates St. Nicholas's Day on the 6th of December, the, the day believed to have been the day of his death. In those countries, children often receive their presents on the 6th of December. In the Netherlands, children leave clogs or shoes out on the 5th of December, St. Nicholas Eve, to be filled with presents. They also believe that if they lay some hay and carrots in their shoes for Sinterklaas's horse, they will be left some sweets. And you can kind of see that the, the transference to reindeer and Father Christmas. In the 16th century in Northern Europe, after the Reformation, the stories and traditions about St. Nicholas became less popular. There were stories of old man Christmas, father Christmas, uh, from the story plays of the Middle Ages. And France, for example, gave their presents at Christmas. The, the giver became known as Père Noël. The figure of Father Christmas was certainly known in England in the 17th century, but of course, the Puritans at the time took a dim view of such uh, excitement and sentiment and, and sought to ban Christmas altogether. And it wasn't Oliver Cromwell personally. He was a Puritan, of course, and it was very much the members of his faith who wanted to not celebrate things they considered to be somewhat pagan and far too celebratory at Christmas, who banned Christmas. During the Victorian period, this rather obscure figure from folklore took on a new prominence and became very much more the man we know today. And I suppose that's sexist, isn't it? But never mind, carry on. Santa Claus is quite an American version of, of Father Christmas. 
One theory is that the Dutch settlers in the United States took the old stories of St. Nicholas with them and Chris Kringle, Christekind, St. Nicholas became Sinterklaas and eventually Santa Claus. Gradually over the past 180 years or so, Father Christmas and Santa Claus seem to have become merged in, in everyone's psyche probably into the now over-commercialised figure that we recognise today. Oops, I've been a bit scroogey there. This was enhanced in 1822 when Clement Seymour drew up the legends of St Nicholas in his poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Some people say that Santa comes from the North Pole. In Finland, they say that he lives in the northern part of their country called Lapland. And of course, it's now possible not with coronavirus, but until this year, it was possible to visit Lapland to meet the reindeer. Most people seem to agree that Father Christmas travels through the sky on a sled that's pulled by reindeer, that he comes into the house down the chimney at night and places presents for the children in socks or bags at the end of their beds in front of the Christmas tree or by the fireplace. However, did you know that Santa Claus, uh, you probably know all the names of, of Santa Claus, reindeer, uh, Rudolph, etc., but they may well have been girls because, of course, most males discard their antlers and saving their energy for the growth of new ones in the spring. So at Christmas time, male reindeer have shed their antlers. So the beasts we normally associate pulling Father Christmas's sled may well have been girls. Next, on to our very traditional Christmas trees. Evergreen has traditionally been used to celebrate winter festivals, both pagan and Christian, for thousands of years. Pagans used branches of it to decorate their homes during the winter solstice and as it made them think of spring to come. The Romans used fir trees to decorate their temples, again at the festival of Saturnalia. And Christians have always seen the trees as a, a sign of everlasting life with God. Not sure when the first fir trees were first used as Christmas trees, but it possibly began, began as long as a thousand years ago in Northern Europe. Other early Christmas trees across many parts of Northern Europe were cherry or hawthorn plants or a branch of the plant. And they were put into pots and put inside so they would hopefully flower at Christmas time. There is a picture in Germany in 1521, which shows a tree being paraded through the streets with a man riding on a horse behind it. The man is dressed as a bishop. Possibly that could be a reference to St. Nicholas. There's a record of a small tree in Bremen in Germany in 1570. It's described as a tree decorated with apples, nuts, dates, sweets and paper flowers. And it was displayed in a guild house, guilds being fairly similar to the guilds we would associate with the city, societies of businessmen. Another story says that St Boniface of Crediton in Devon left England and travelled to Germany to preach to the pagan German tribes. He converted them to Christianity. He's said to have come across a group of pagans about to sacrifice a young boy whilst worshipping an oak tree in anger and to stop the sacrifice. St Boniface is said to have cut down the oak tree. To his amazement, a young fir tree sprang up from the roots of the oak tree. 
St Boniface took this as a sign of the Christian faith and his followers decorated the tree with candles. Again, don't know quite how true that one is. In Germany, the first Christmas trees were decorated with edible things uh, such as gingerbread and gold-covered apples. Then glassmakers made special small ornaments similar to the ones that were used as decorations today. In 1605, an unknown German wrote, At Christmas, they set up fir trees in the parlours of Strasbourg and hang thereon roses cut out of many-coloured paper, apples, wafers, gold foil and sweets. At first sight, a figure of the baby Jesus was put on the top of a tree. Over time, that changed to an angel or a fairy that told the story of Jesus or a star referring to the star seen by the wise men. That's changed as well. The first Christmas tree in the UK was possibly introduced by Queen Charlotte, the German wife of King George III. In 1800, she had a tree brought in at the Queen's Lodge in Windsor for a children's party, and soon having a tree became popular amongst many rich families. And of course, not long after, you have Victoria and Albert. In 1848, a drawing of the Queen's Christmas tree in Windsor Castle was published by the Illustrated London News. It showed Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, and their family of young children around a Christmas tree, which was set on a table. Of course, a site we're familiar with is the Norwegian tree in Trafalgar Square. The tradition of the Trafalgar Square tree has been an annual gift to the people of Britain from the people of Norway as a token of gratitude for Britain's support during the Second World War. The Trafalgar Square tree is usually uh, about 50 to 60 year old Norway spruce. Uh, generally, it's over 20 metres tall. The trees cut in Norway sometime in November during a ceremony which is attended by the British ambassador to Norway, the mayor of Oslo and the Lord Mayor. After the tree is cut, it's shipped to the UK across the North Sea. Once in Trafalgar Square, it's decorated within traditional Norwegian style and adorned with 500 white lights. The base of the tree stands a plaque bearing the words, this tree is given by the city of Oslo as a token of Norwegian gratitude to the people of London for their assistance during the war years 1940-45. to 45. The tree lighting ceremony in Trafalgar Square is usually led by the Lord Mayor and takes place on the first Thursday in December. Tree lights. There are several different claims as to who invented the first strings of electric lights. In 1880, the inventor Thomas Edison put some of his new electric light bulbs around his office. In 1882, Edward Johnson, who was a colleague of Edison, hand-strung 80 red, white and blue bulbs together and put them on his tree in his New York apartment. In 1890, the Edison Company published a brochure offering lighting services for Christmas. The first commercially available string of electric lights were advertised in 1903 in America, when a string of 24 lights cost $12. On to some more traditional things that we recognise associated with Christmas. Holly, ivy and other evergreens such as mistletoe date back to pre-Christian times and were always used to celebrate the winter solstice and they were used to ward off evil spirits 
and celebrate new growth. Holly in particular, with its barbed leaves and red berries, had long been identified with eternal life and protection. At first, the Christian church forbade holly in churches, but it continued to appear in people's houses as the red berries were thought to ward off witches. The Christian church put a new spin on the pagan plant. The leaves were taken to represent Christ's crown of thorns and the berries his blood. As holly was traditionally assigned uh, so much potential power, when decorations were taken down on Candlemas on the 2nd of February, they were never thrown away, they were burnt. In Scandinavia, holly is known as Christ's thorn. Ivy. Ivy is considered the female plant to the male holly and another symbol of everlasting life and resurrection. Interestingly, the plant now seen in somewhat a more friendly light was originally mistrusted. Folklore claimed that the vine would bring madness and intoxication. In many counties, for example, Northamptonshire, it had to be countered by the beneficial holly. Decorating your home with ivy alone would bring bucket loads of bad luck. Christian view is that ivy clung to something to support itself as it grows, which is paralleled with clinging to God to support in our lives. In Germany, it's a tradition that ivy is only used outside and a piece tied to the outside of a church was supposed to protect from lightning. On to mistletoe. Hands up if you've never been kissed in the mistletoe. A mistletoe is a plant that grows on a range of trees, including willow, apple and oak trees. The tradition of hanging it in the house goes back to ancient times and the Druids. It's supposed to possess mystical powers which bring good luck to the household and again ward off evil spirits. It was also used as a sign of love and friendship in Norse mythology. Mistletoe was considered so sacred in ancient Britain that it could only be cut by Druids with a golden sickle. The plant had connotations of peace and people who met underneath it were forbidden from fighting, even when they were bitter enemies. Homes decorated with mistletoe offered shelter and protection to anyone who entered. To the Druids, it was a potent symbol of fertility and the Greeks and the Romans regularly discussed peace terms beneath its boughs. From the Middle Ages, our ancestors hung it above the threshold to ward off evil spirits. So you kind of see why kissing under the mistletoe has kind of been adopted and an adaptation of not fighting and warding off spirits and so on and so forth. When the first Christians came to Western Europe, some tried to ban the use of mistletoe in churches, but it still continued. York Minster Church used to hold a special mistletoe service in the winter where wrongdoers in the city of York could come and be pardoned. Mistletoe was also hung in the old English decoration called kissing bough. Now a kissing bough was another popular form of Christmas stroke midwinter decoration. These were made of five wooden hoops made in the shape of a ball, four hoops vertical to form a ball, and then the fifth horizontal to go around the middle. The hoops were covered with holly, ivy, rosemary, bay, fir, and other evergreen plants. Inside the hoops were hung red apples, often hung from red ribbons, and a candle was either put inside the ball at the bottom or around the horizontal hoop. 
The bell was finished by hanging a large bunch of mistletoe from the bottom of the ball. Again, we kind of see where our red ribbons that we often tie things up with uh, mistletoe and other decorations, why they're red. Mentioned other evergreens, and one of them in particular is rosemary, which was believed to, again, ward off evil spirits. And it's sometimes also known as friendship plant. It's also been called the remembrance herb and was used at Christmas as this is the time when we remember the birth of Jesus. In the 1700s, a special Christmas rosemary service was started in Ripon Cathedral School, where a red apple with a sprig of rosemary on top of it was sold by the schoolboys to the members of the congregation for tuppence, fourpence or sixpence, depending on the size of the apple. We're all familiar with Christmas wreaths. Many of us will have them hanging on our front door. Again, a circular wreath of evergreens during midwinter goes back a long way. It might have started back in Roman times when wreaths were hung on doors as a sign of victory or a sign of status. Rich Roman women also wore them as headdresses on special occasions, such as weddings, and to show their social standing. Roman emperors, of course, often used laurel wreaths and wore laurel on their heads, not just at Christmas. They were also given to the winners of events of the original Olympic Games. The word wreath comes from the Old English word rhythm, which means to writhe or twist. Christmas wreaths, as we know them today, might have started life as or from the kissing boughs, which I just described. Now, another popular activity, which, of course, we've all been involved in in the last few days, is writing Christmas cards. And I'm sure you've got most of yours ready and you're busy writing them if you haven't. I've still got mine to send. In 1843, John Calcott Horsley sent the first printed Christmas card to his friend Sir Henry Cole. According to the Victorian Albert Museum, Henry Cole was instrumental in reforming the British postal system, helping to set up a uniform penny post, which had been begun the brainchild of Roland Hill, and he encouraged the sending of Christmas greetings cards. The first postal service had begun in 1840. Now, the original card caused some controversy. It was regarded as scandalous because it showed it depicted a child drinking from a glass of wine and everyone else drinking as well. So to those of a more temperate view that this was really quite awful, quite shocking. There were a thousand produced and it's believed that there are only about 12 surviving and in fact one has just recently come up for sale in the Christie's sale. I couldn't find out how much it actually went for, but they were anticipating quite a large sum. Uh, Apparently, one of the surviving cards was sold in 2001 for £20,000. A common feature on our Christmas cards is the lovely robin. But do you know where and why the robin is associated with Christmas and Christmas cards? Well, surrounded by folklore and robins were believed to have arrived at the stable soon after the birth of Jesus Christ. While Joseph was gathering woods, he found the dying fire with his wings to keep it alight. Virgin Mary awarded the robin with the fiery breast 
as a reward and so his red breast is for keeping the fire stoked according to folklore. More traditions of course Christmas pudding originated in the 14th century and was originally called frumenty and it was made of beef and mutton with raisins, currants, prunes, wines and spices. This would be often more like a soup and was eaten as the fasting meal in preparation for the Christmas festivities. By 1595, frumenty was slowly changing into plum pudding. I presume it was solidifying as well. It started to be thickened with eggs, breadcrumbs, dried fruit, and given more flavour with the addition of beer and spirits. It became the customary Christmas dessert by the mid-17th century. However, of course, the Puritans dampened that one a bit. But 1714, King George I re-established it as part of the Christmas meal, having tasted and enjoyed plum pudding. By Victorian times, Christmas pudding had changed into the pudding we are more familiar with today. Over the years, many superstitions have surrounded Christmas puddings. One superstition says that the pudding should be made with 13 ingredients to represent Jesus and his disciples, and that every member of the family should take turn in stirring the pudding with a wooden spoon from east to west in honour of the wise men. Although the Christmas puddings were eaten at Christmas, some customs associated with the puddings are about Easter. For example, the decorative sprig of holly on the top of the pudding is a reminder of Jesus's crown of thorns that he wore when he was crucified. Brandy and other alcoholic drinks sometimes poured over the pudding and lit at the table with a spectacular inflammatory display is said to represent Jesus's love and power. In the Middle Ages, holly was thought to bring good luck and healing powers, and it was offering, often included on the Christmas pudding. Mince pies. We're nearly there. Mince pies, like Christmas pudding, were originally filled with meat, such as lamb, rather than dried fruits and spices, which we have today. They, again, were often seen, as, particularly by the 19th century, as an indication of wealth because of the ingredients were only really affordable by people who had money. A custom from the Middle Ages says that if you eat a mince pie every day from Christmas to Twelfth Night, 5th of January, you'll have happiness for the next 12 months. So if you need any justification whatsoever to keep eating mince pies, there you are, you have it there. It'll bring you good luck. And last, but by no means least, Christmas crackers. Supposedly, the first were made about 1845 to 1850 by a London sweet maker called Tom Smith. He had seen the French bonbon sweets, which were almonds wrapped in pretty paper, on a visit to Paris in 1840. He came back to London and tried selling sweets like that in England and also included a small motto or riddle in with a sweet, but they didn't sell very well. Legend has it that one night, while he was sitting in front of his log fire, fascinated by the sparks and cracks coming from the fire, he thought it would be a good idea if in his sweets he put toys that could be opened with a crack with fancy wrappers and pulled in half. In 1861, Tom Smith launched his new range of what he called Bangs of Expectation. It's thought that he bought the idea for the small cracks and bangs in crackers from a firework company called 
Brock's Fireworks. Now, how many of you remember Brock's Fireworks? Anyway, that's he, he's said to have bought the idea for crackers from them. When Tom died, his expanding cracker business was taken over by his three sons, Tom, Walter and Henry. And it was Walter who introduced the hats into crackers. Well, there's a trot around some, but not all, of the Christmas traditions that we, we think of today. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.